love coffee. Start every day with a cup of coffee. Some days is kind of a, you know, some days is two or three cups a day. Um, and I get a cappuccino at a cafe every now and then. But I am not a coffee snob, okay? I don't like roast my own beans or grind my own beans. I just really like coffee. Now, quick survey. Okay, hands up, all of you. Those of you who like coffee, hands up, hands up. Okay, we have a lot of you who like coffee. Okay, now keep your hands up. No, don't keep your hands up. Okay, here's a, okay. pay attention to, to, to the question, okay? Those of you with your hands up, if you liked coffee the very first time you tasted it, keep your hands up. The very first time you tasted it. Whoa, not many of you laugh. Okay, put them down now. Okay, that tells you something, doesn't it? First time I ever tasted coffee, I was like eight or nine years old. Um, it was at a kind of a, on a sidewalk in a cafe uh, near in Taipei, Taiwan. I was with my older cousin, right? I, and she was having coffee with a friend. And I, you know, I've always been curious about coffee. I see people drinking coffee on television or the movies. And, you know, and here I was with my older cousin, not with my parents. You know, so I asked her, hey, can I try your coffee, right? And, you know, and she said, sure, go right ahead. Gotta love older cousins. Um, <laughs> so I took the, the cup and I was like, getting excited, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a deep breath, I'm gonna really enjoy this cup of coffee, right? And then I took a sip. And I was like, Bruh! what the heck is this? It is bitter, it is disgusting. Why would anybody drink coffee who actually likes coffee? Why would they pay money for this, right? <laughs> Four decades later. Coffee is an acquired taste. Not everybody likes coffee. And for those of us who do, most of us didn't like it at the beginning. It took us a while to acquire a taste for it. Well, today we're talking about heaven. And here's the big idea for the sermon, okay? You get, we get it right up front. The big idea, heaven is like coffee. Heaven is an acquired taste. Not everybody will like it, and for those of us that do, it takes a while to acquire a taste for it. Now, you're probably confused because that's not usually the first thought you have when you think about heaven. So before I explain myself, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Greeting all of you here and all the sites and venues and those of us who are joining us online and through the podcast. And to the Chinese speakers, to the Spanish speakers, es un gusto de nosotros aquí con nosotros. Now, we are on the second to last Sunday in our sermon series called Live This Book. And, in the, and we've been doing this series since last September. And, and in the series, the big idea is that we are reading the Bible together as a whole, as a single story. And one of the things we found is that when you read the Bible as a story, as a way of shifting things that we're familiar with, right? Like, like things we thought we knew about the Bible, about God, they become somewhat unfamiliar, somewhat different. Well, today we're going to get a big dose of that. Today we're going to look at heaven according to the story of the Bible. Now, heaven is a very popular topic in our culture. Okay? All, you see it all over the place, TV shows, movies, very popular because I think, and I hope this does not come as a surprise to people, because we are all going to die. So we're naturally very curious about what's gonna come afterwards. So I get a lot of questions. I get a lot of questions about heaven. And one of the hardest things about asking, answering questions about heaven is that people come with preconceived notions 
about heaven that's based on the culture, not based on the Bible. And these cultural ideas about heaven, they confuse things. They make it hard to have a conversation. So today, what I want to do is, before I start talking about heaven according to the Bible, I want to start by clearing the ground, okay? I'm going to begin by describing a, a narrative in, a culture, in our culture about what heaven is. Not everybody believes in it, but it's popular enough that it is the foundation of many misconceptions about heaven. And, they, and then I'm going to talk about how the biblical understanding of heaven is different, okay? We're going to start with the culture. All right, so to talk about heaven according to culture, we need to talk about God according to our culture. And in our culture, God is a judge, okay? Which means two things. Number one, he has standards, he has rules. And number two, he wants humans to follow them. Now, how does he do that? How does he make that happen? Well, he has a system for evaluation, which is divided into two parts. Part one, he has a state-of-the-art comprehensive surveillance system, which is captured in that classical theological treatise, Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> to it, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Now, I know this is talking about Santa Claus, but in our culture, Santa Claus is really the embodiment of our culture's view of God. Our God is like Santa Claus. He sees everything. He is big brother. He is watching. Now, what does God do with this information that he collects? Well, <laughs> he's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. In our culture, God is a divine being counter. Right? He has a database, because a list is so 20th century. He has a database where everybody, everything you've ever done from your birth unto death, everything you've ever done is entered into the database. And when an action is entered into it, there's an immediate calculation kind of a formula, right? Based on what you've done, based on the God's rules, a score is generated, okay? Good works, positive score, naughty, negative score, okay? And now this is where heaven comes in, because when you die, all the scores are tabulated, and you get a positive score, well, you're a good person, you go to heaven. Negative score, well, you're a bad person, well, you go to hell. Well, if heaven is a reward for a good life and an incentive to do good, what then is heaven in this cultural view? Well, it has to be a place where you get what you want, right? If it's an incentive, if it's a reward, it has to be something you want, which means we, we basically, our culture sees heaven as like this. Here on earth, you're working and doing really, really good, be a really, really good person so that in heaven, you can relax and have fun and do everything you want. It's like an eternal retirement plan, okay? That's what heaven is. Heaven is a place where you get what you want. Now, that's our culture's view of heaven, there is a Christianized version of this, okay? There's a Christianized version of this. What I mean, when I mean Christianized, what I mean by that is, is throughout the past 2,000 years, there's been Christ followers who would look at what's in our culture and they would put a Christian cover over it so that it looks Christian if you don't look too closely and you don't look under the cover. And in this case, what they would do is they look at this, this whole system and they would accept it and they would then go and bolt Jesus onto it. Okay, so this is what it looks like, okay? So um, God is a judge, God has a system for evaluation, heaven's a reward for good life, all that is true, except, oh, we have a problem. God's standard, too high. 
Nobody can get a positive score. Everybody has negative score. Everybody is underwater. Nobody can get in. So how do we solve that problem? Well, Jesus' death on the cross erases my negative scores. And so that if I believe in Jesus, I get to go to heaven. Okay? This is the God of our culture with Jesus tacked on. All right? Now, let me just make sure I'm clear on this. Okay? The Bible says that Jesus' death brings forgiveness, brings reconciliation between us and God. Absolutely true. So what, so what they've done is they've taken an aspect of the gospel and they tacked it on to something that's part of our secular culture. They, take, they, they, they applied it to a system where God is a judge out there. He has a system for evaluation and, and living a good life is a, gives, you, gives you a place in heaven. That entire system is secular, is non-biblical. And we know that because we have been reading the Bible. We have been reading the story of the Bible, right? And does this sound like the story we've been reading? Right? No, not at all. So I want to make sure we see the difference. I want to make sure we see the difference, okay? Difference number one. The God of the culture is a distant judge, unaffected by humans. Is that true of the God in the Bible? Absolutely not. The God of the Bible is engaged and relational. He's like, he's like, he's forming covenants with people. He says, hey, I want, to, I want you to have a relationship with me that's committed. I will love you, you will love me, and, and we will be loyal to each other. And, and he gets really disappointed when his, the people don't love him back. He's deeply affected by human relationships. What does God want? Well, the God of our culture wants humans to live a good life. Why? He just does. What does the God of the Bible want? He's a king who wants his land back. And you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> right? He's a king who wants his land back. Right there, you know there's a story. And this is the crucial difference between the God of culture and the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is part of a story, and you know this story. Right? The story begins with God creating this earth, beautiful earth. And he, and he says, hey, human beings, I create you. I want you to be my children and live with me and image me and rule this earth with me. And that's right here. And the humans rebel. They say, no, thank you. We want to run the earth ourselves. And what happens is the earth falls into violence and sin and injustice and exploitation and death. So what does God want? He wants his land back, right? Earth has seceded from God's domain. Earth is now rebel territory. God wants his land back and he wants to reestablish his vision for earth. And to do that, he needs to woo his wayward children back to him. And to do that, he talks to a guy named Abraham and he says, hey, you and your children form a kingdom. I will know you, I will love you, you will know me, you will love me, and you will reveal who I am so that all the other people can go, oh, hey, look at that. It's pretty cool, pretty cool to live under God's rule. It's pretty cool to live as God with God as king, right? But then ancient Israel, Abraham's children, they're supposed to know God, they're supposed to love God. They reject God. They join the rebellion. And that's where the story of the Old Testament ends. But that is not where the story of the Bible ends because God does not give up. This time, God himself enters into the world. The king comes into rebel territory as a human being, Jesus of Nazareth. He comes in to recruit a people 
who know him, who love him, and pledge allegiance to him. But the rebels, the rebels, they grab him, they kill him, they execute him on the cross. But astoundingly, his death on the cross becomes the climax of the story because God says, through this cross, I'm going to unite everybody who believes in Jesus. I'm going to take all of them and unite them with Jesus himself. And all of us who are Christ followers, we are united with Jesus, which means not only are sins forgiven, no, no, more than that, we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out our calling, to image God, to be his sons and daughters. <laughs> How is that different from the God of culture? How is that different from the God of culture, right? Over here is a distant judge. Over here is a passionately engaged king who's on a mission to get his land back. How are they different? Well, I'll tell you. First of all, a king does judge. Okay? Just to make this clear. A king rewards good, good, good behavior. A king punishes evil doing. A king administers justice. But there's a fundamental difference between the two. The judge asks, did you do wrong? The king asks, are you on my side? The judge asks, hey, are you doing good? The king asks, are you with me? Do you like my vision? Are you loyal to me? This is one of the big ideas I want us to get from this whole series. The Bible portrays God as a king on a mission, which means he values loyalty over morality. He's looking for people to say, hey, I want you to come and join me. Be on my side and enter into a relationship with me. I know some of you are getting worried. You're like, hey, Charles, are you saying that God doesn't care about good behavior? Are you saying that he doesn't care about sin? He absolutely cares about sin. That's what the whole point is. Earth has fallen into sin and violence and injustice and exploitation, and God wants to get rid of it. He wants to restore the earth according to his plan. But here's the critical detail. You don't have to be good to join God's side. You have to know that. That's important. You don't have to be good to be on God's side. Look at the Bible. Look at the people that God has working for him. Abraham, coward and a liar. Moses, murderer. David, adultery plus murder. His disciples, Peter, talks a big game, can't walk it. Paul, persecutor of the church. Good behavior is not an entrance requirement to join God's side. Far from it. God says, I'm looking for loyalty. I'm looking for passion. Do you see my vision? Do you want to? Do you want to know me? Do you want to be part of me? Because if you join me, I can give you the power to change your life. I can give you the power to transform you so you can live out the power of what it means to image me, to be my sons and daughters. Join me and you will never live the same way again. If that's what God is up to in the Bible, what is heaven? Heaven's the end of the story, people. Heaven is the end of the story. In the future, sometime in the future, Jesus will come back to this earth. He will come and he's not like, he's not like last time. He's gonna come as the king, the all-powerful conquering king. And he will establish his reign on this earth. That's the heaven we're looking for. 
That's what we hope for. Okay? In the future, God will restore his rule on this earth. God will get his land back. And that's the heaven that the Bible is talking about. All right. What does this heaven look like? I feel like I'm going to start with a, with a timeline because it's, it's, I think it answers a lot of questions. Okay, so I'm going start with this. This is our cultural timeline when it comes to heaven and hell. And we already know it's wrong, but here it goes. You're born, you do all the stuff, right? All gets calculated. You die, the score gets tabulated. Positive score, heaven. Negative score, hell. Okay, that's not biblical. Here's the biblical timeline. You're born. And for, for those of us who are Christ followers, at some point in our life, we join with Jesus. Okay? You are with Jesus. You are united with Jesus. And at the point of death, you are now with Christ. The Bible never uses the word heaven to talk about this period of time right here after death. Okay? It says you're with Christ. And for those who are not Christ followers, they're in the place called the grave or, or the place of the dead. From our death to this, time, this line right here, the time of resurrection, this period, theologians call it the intermediate state. And uh, the Bible doesn't focus on it very much. It's not a focus. Everything happens here with the return of Jesus. At that moment, he conquers earth. He reestablishes reign on earth. And all the dead are resurrected. And then there's judgment. And then those who are with God, who are on God's side, they get to be with God. And those who are not on God's side, they're not with God. By the way, Pastor Chris did a fantastic sermon on health a few weeks ago. If you haven't, didn't see it, you got to go see it. It's one of the best I've ever seen, ever heard. Okay, go catch that one. But this outline right here actually shows us something about heaven that's critical. Okay, this outline right here tells us that in heaven you have a body. Okay, so. In our cultural understanding, there's a lot of ideas about us, you know, in heaven floating around in the clouds, you know, with, with wings and playing harps. That's not biblical at all, okay? That's just, not, that's just nonsensical, all right? No, no, no. It, it, the, the, the Bible emphasizes the physicality, that God created this physical earth. It's good. Jesus actually takes on a physical body, and he still has it, and he will always have it. So we get a body. All the people who, who, who are dead, they, they, they resurrect. The Bible says they, they resurrect. And what that means is you get a new body. This is important. Not the old body, a new body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Okay. We get a new body that is imperishable, glorious, and powerful. It will not break. Now, some of you are younger and you have, you're in great shape. Um, you don't care about this very much. But for me, okay, this is TMI. I take metformin, allopurinol, uh, torvastatin. I, I take two different types of allergy drugs. I get up to use the restroom about two or three times every night. Um, <laughs> I have two different set of prescription glasses and I get them confused at work all the time, which means I walk around the office and I can't see anything and see anybody. Every time I exercise, my back is sore for a week and it's only downhill from, downhill from here, folks, okay? I can't wait for a new body. Can't wait. Now, 
but it's more than having a body that doesn't get sick. It's more than that. We're, talk, we're talking about, look, just think about the implications of a body that doesn't break. Okay? The implications are, are, are mind-boggling. Imagine a world where nobody can physically harm another person. Right? No threats, no violence, no exploitation, no weapons. Weapons are useless. No war. Imagine that world. Or, 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 or think about this. I don't have to eat to survive. I think the Bible says you can eat in heaven, but I don't have to. I don't need shelter. I can live in the great outdoors in freezing Wisconsin winter and I'll be fine. <laughs> Which means I don't need a house. I don't need real estate. Imagine a world where nobody needs anything physical to survive. There goes the idea of scarcity. There goes the idea of competition for resources. There goes the idea of poverty and wealth. Whoa. Those of you who study economics, okay, think about what that means for the economy of heaven. Right? Think about it. Work it out. Now, some of you probably, if you remembered this talk from the beginning, you're like, hey, heaven sounds pretty awesome, Charles. Why'd you compare it to coffee? Why'd you, why'd you say it's an acquired taste? Well, first of all, because coffee is awesome. <laughs> There's got to be coffee in heaven. And second, and second, I haven't talked about something about heaven that is difficult for us humans, okay? There's something about heaven that if you're the first time you ever hear it, your response is not, ooh, I really want that. At least not for me, Okay? There's something about heaven that is problematic. The problem is we can't just kind of sweep it under the rug. We can't just ignore it because it's actually the very core of heaven. It is the very definition of heaven itself. What is heaven according to the Bible? What makes heaven, heaven? There's a book at the very end of the Bible called Revelation. Um, and the last two chapters, chapters 21, 22, they, they describe God reclaiming earth as his own. It becomes part of his domain. Heaven comes to earth and God rules over earth. And verse three of chapter 21 is the key verse. It defines heaven, okay? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Jump down to verse seven. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, God says, and I will be their God and they will be my children. Verse three is the key verse. You notice the repetition. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Just a little repetitive, right? And God himself will be with them. Do you see the repetition? What is heaven? Heaven is the place where God dwells with his people. Heaven is the place where God and his people do life together. And what is the nature of that relationship? They will be his people and God himself will be their God. Verse seven, God says, I will be their God and they will be my children. Now this phrase right here, I will be their God and they will be my people. They will be my children. Some way, somehow, in various forms, shows up in the Bible repeatedly. You will see it over and over and over again. It is what God wants. This is his vision for the world. This is what he's wanted from the very beginning. 
So what does this phrase mean? Well, let's break it down. What does I will be their God mean? In the ancient world, to be somebody's God is to be the source of their security, joy, hope, and identity. What gives you security? What makes you feel safe? God says, I want to be the one to make you feel secure. I want to be the one to make you feel safe. What gives you joy? How do you experience gladness? God says, I want you to experience joy through me. I want you to experience gladness in me. What do you hope for? Who do you hope for? God says, I want to be your hope. I want you to hope in my promises. Who are you? God says, I want to be the foundation of your self-esteem. I want to be the basis of your identity. In the ancient world, to be somebody's God, for, for, for being to say, I want to be your God, is for that being to say, I want to be at the absolute center of your life. And look, this is where the story's been going for a while, people. Uh, you guys remember hearing the talk on the cross? Remember on the cross, we're united with Jesus. Those of us who are Christ followers, we are in a spiritual union with Jesus. You know what that means? It means, means you're closer to Jesus than with anybody else in the world. You're closer to Jesus than with your friends, than with your children, than with your spouse. You are united with Jesus. And that relationship will only get deeper in heaven. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. This deepening relationship with God. Is it something you've always wanted? Is it something you always long for? The second half of that sentence. You will be my people or my children. Okay. In our culture, we use God's children, this phrase to convey respect or dignity or worth. Like, hey, we're all God's children. Therefore, you know, we're all worthy of respect. Okay. Now, first of all, being God's children absolutely conveys worth and dignity and respect. But as usual, our, our culture misses the point. Okay. To be God's children or to be anybody's children in the Bible, to be God's children means, well, you have God's traits. You are God-like you're a copy of God, or, or in scientific terms, you have God's DNA. You are a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's what it means to be God's children. To be God's people, or his children, is to live a life that expresses God. Is that what you want? Have you always wanted that? Have you always longed for that? All right, let me see if I can pull it together. Let's start, let's start from the beginning. Okay, a reminder, right? Number one, first thing we learned, heaven is not a reward for a good life. And I hope this answers one of the, the questions that I get asked the most. And people say, hey, Charles, I have a great friend. They, they, they don't want the whole God and church thing, but they're so good. They're loving and selfless and kind and, 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 and just does everything right. They're, they're just good people. How can they not be in heaven? The answer, heaven is not a reward for a good life. Full stop. So who goes to heaven? Heaven is the restoration of God's reign on earth. So people who want to live under God's rule, they go to heaven. 
Okay, there's only, there's only one interest requirement. Okay, there's only one box to check. There's not this big long list of things. One box to check. Do you pledge allegiance to Jesus as your king? Do you submit to him? Do you want him to rule? Do you want him to establish his vision over this whole earth? Yes, welcome to heaven. That's it. That's it. And what does Jesus envision for, the, for this heaven? It's a physical world with, with physical bodies that don't break, which means there's no pain, no death. And because everybody around is, is living out their relationship with God, oh my goodness, it's a place without anxiety, without fear, without competition, without a sense of inferiority. There's no depression. Right? There's no mental health issues. There's no economic inequality. There's no injustice. There's no prejudice. There are ethnic differences, but we actually love across differences. You are never alone because you are fully known and you're fully loved. Heaven is awesome, people. Heaven is absolutely awesome. But all that awesomeness comes at a cost. Heaven is where God is in charge. And he is at the absolute center of everybody's lives. And everybody in heaven knows God, loves God, and lives to express God. And we are not wired for that. Okay? We are broken people born into a broken world. And this world tells us, hey, I'm in charge. I'm the big guy. I could do what I want. I live to express myself. We're born into this world. We are wired to live in this world. We are not wired to live in heaven. So yes, we want all the good stuff that God brings, but what we don't want is God who brings it. There will be people who don't want heaven. There will be people when they actually find out what heaven is really about, they're going to say, yeah, no, thank you. I'll be honest. First time I heard about heaven, freshman year of college, Somebody finally explained to me, oh, heaven is the place where you actually get to know God. Like he, you, you live with him and, and, and you get to like live to express who God is. And my reaction, really? That's heaven? Wow. <laughs> right? I mean, like, okay, I, I had no idea what it all meant, but, you sh you know, but it sure didn't sound attractive, right? I mean, living with God, that feels like living with my parents and having them watch me all the time. Why would I want that? Right? Expressing God. Love, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Boring. <laughs> I'm not interested. My primary interest in heaven at the time was that it was not hell. And you know what God said? God said, I can work with that. For the past 30 years, the Holy Spirit has been working in my life to help me acquire a taste for heaven. He's given me glimpses of this intimacy with God, glimpses of, of being closer, being known by him and to know him. And what I've experienced is this joy, this fulfillment of a relationship with God that I can't imagine. And it's so wonderful. And, and, then, and then God's like, I want to show you what it could look like if you start to reveal who I am. Okay? And so I'm taking steps forward, not even close, but I'm taking steps forward. And what I find is that it's not awkward. I'm not trying to be somebody I'm not. I feel like I'm being more who I am, who I'm supposed to be all along. It fits. It's good. I got the taste and I want more. So here's what I believe. 
I believe that knowing God and living a life that images God is actually the best part of heaven. In heaven, God gives us himself. He gives us the very best he has to offer. We just have to develop a taste for it. All right. For some of you here, I think you've been in a bit of shock, right? If you haven't heard this before, you're like, okay, wow. Heaven is not a reward, and I might not even like heaven. (laughs) It's okay to not want heaven, okay? Because we're not wired for it. We're naturally not wired. Being from this world, we're not wired to like heaven. But part of following Jesus is to develop that desire, to change our wiring so that we become people who actually want the very best that God has to offer us. To be in a place where God is in charge, where we get to know him, and we get to live out who he is, the transformation into his likeness. That's going to be our joy in our life. And how do we do that? Next week, we're going to have a series finale. We're going to look at the story as a whole. We're going to talk about, hey, what are some questions people have? And what are things we can learn from this whole story of the Bible? And the week after that, we start a new sermon series. And I'm so excited about the sermon series. It's called Summer Camp. Okay. And in this series, okay, we've been, we've been learning a lot. You got to admit, okay, entire year of learning about the Bible is very heady, okay? Even if we try to get to do applications. This is a whole summer focused on things we can do to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can then help us, right? It's, it's talking about creating space, changing the structures in our lives, adapting practices that will help the Holy Spirit help us acquire taste for heaven. That starts in two weeks. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. All right. Heaven is an acquired taste. The core of it. Do you want it? Do you want heaven as it truly is? A place where you get to know God and you get to live with God and you get to live in a way that reveals God for eternity. Do you want the very best that God has to offer? I want to give you a time right now for, for some meditation. So go ahead and close your eyes and bow down. And, and there's some quiet here. Okay? Quiet down your thoughts, quiet down your heart and talk to God. And while you're doing that, I'm, I'm going to talk to a, some, some people in this room and then I'll gather all of us to pray. For some of you, you've, you've been checking out the Christian faith for a while now. You've been looking at the church. You're going, hmm, what's going on here? And I hope today you got a clear picture of who God is in the Bible and what he wants and what the hope is. And today you want to make that decision to follow Jesus. I invite you to do that right now. Okay. You learned that there's only one entrance requirement, that you pledge allegiance to Jesus and and, and submit to him as king. So if you want to do that, pray that prayer right now. Pray, Father, I pledge my allegiance to Jesus. I want him to be the king of my life. I want to know him. And I want his power to transform who I am. Okay. If you pray that prayer, awesome. Talk to somebody about this. Let people know that you made that decision. For some of you, today's been a jarring kind of talk. 
what you thought heaven is, is isn't. And uh, I think it's good to talk to God about things you're learning. So pray, Father, I ask for wisdom. I want to know what heaven is truly. I don't want to be influenced by what my culture is saying. I want to know what it truly is so that I can live a life in pursuit of becoming a person who actually desires heaven. All right, let's pray together. Father, in heaven, you're gonna give us you yourself. And I have to say, I'm not sure what that, what that means. Like, it's like, maybe I have a taste of it, but I probably like less than 1% of it. I have no idea. But uh, I've seen enough to want it. And Father, I pray that for all of us, that we get that glimpse. We become people who want to want to acquire taste for you. <sighs> Looking for that day with hope, with anticipation, excitement. And Jesus, and we pray. Amen. <laughs>